pain is what the patient says it is. It's that simple. And if a patient feels like this is intolerable, then it's intolerable. You know, I hate the word drama queen. Oh, that dog's a drama queen. I hate it because you know what? We don't know. Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. On today's show, we visit rural Michigan and find ourselves on a horse farm, home to none other than veterinary pain management guru, Dr. Mike Petty. Mike is a graduate of the College of Veterinary Medicine at Michigan State University. He has been the owner of Arbor Point Veterinary Hospital since 1985. And it was here he dedicated himself to becoming a pet pain management specialist, developing his practice to include the Animal Pain Center, a hugely popular service drawing pet owners from far and wide. Within this particular niche, Dr. Petty expanded his knowledge and skills to encompass the most up-to-date and compassionate treatments available. He is certified as, and wait for it, a veterinary pain practitioner, a medical veterinary acupuncturist, a canine rehabilitation therapist, and he's a diplomat of the American Academy of Pain Management. In 2016, he published his first book, Dr. Petty's Pain Relief for Dogs, the complete medical and integrative guide to treating pain. Mike is the past president of the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management and the co-author of the AHA and AAFP 2015 Pain Guidelines. He's an international speaker, highly published author with articles in several veterinary journals and serves in an advisory capacity to several pharmaceutical companies on topics of pain management. Now, before we jump into the show, a quick word from today's sponsor, the VetEx community. We all know imposter syndrome, burnout and angry clients are real and cause many vets to leave their jobs and careers. But what you might not know is that a place where you can learn and master the essential street skills for how to be a great GP vet, upon which you can build a sustainable and fulfilling career. A place where you can access mentors, view jobs from practices that care about culture, that means you, and access new weekly articles and podcasts dedicated to your career. That place is called Vetex, and you can access all of the resources, including a career planning tool, the race accredited Thrive Professional Skills course, hundreds of articles, podcasts, live mentor Q&A sessions, swag, and more. To join the hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better, go to vetexinternational.com today and register for free. Now back to the show. Chatting with Dr. Petty was a real privilege. He's one of the people others frequently recommend to be a guest on the show, partly for his knowledge and pain management, but also for his contribution to veterinary medicine and his affable personality. We explore the background and career of Dr. Petty, covering everything from slightly weirdly Vespas to more controversially lasers and much in between. So if you need some pain management advice or even some career inspiration from someone who's been in this for the long haul, this is going to be a show you do not want to miss. So sit back, get comfy and enjoy this. My conversation with veterinary medicine's pain management maestro, Dr. Mike Petty. I have hit record. There you go. That's the first win of the day when you hit the record button when you're recording podcasts with awesome, awesome other people in this veterinary profession, one of whom I've got right beside me. Actually, it's not right beside me. Right beside me virtually is Dr. Mike Petty. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, me too. You are actually, you might not know this, but actually you are one of the people that is most recommended by other people when they come up to me and say, you need to get this person on the show. And quite often, you know, they're recommending people, um, you know, it's a lot of good recommendations and there's a few like, oh, yeah. But no, I was like, I do need to get Dr. Mike Petty on the show. 
it was probably my good friend Sheila Robertson that uh, was pushing for me to be on. I seriously think you might do well to get a restraining order. <laughs> and I say that with such fondness and love for Sheila, but I, you know, she's, <laughs> I'm teasing Sheila if you're listening. Sorry. She definitely was one of them, but I think you've got a lot of fangirls in the lap of love land. Yeah, good. But it was by no means just them. I think there's a lot of people who have enjoyed learning from you over the years, I suspect, that gets you that recommendation. So really happy to make this happen. So we're going to dig into your career love, let's, let's call it that, in a little bit. But before we sort of dive into that, I'm super keen to dig back into the, the past, go way upstream from veterinary medicine, and kind of ask, like, where did this all start? Uh, I ask this of a lot of guests, like, where did this sort of, where's the, the wellspring of ending up in veterinary medicine for Dr. Mike Petty? Unlike probably so many people, I wasn't at the age of two or three saying I want to be a veterinarian, but I've always been interested in medicine. And I was in high school and I was struggling what to do and, you know, where I wanted to do it. My older brother, who actually always talked about being a veterinarian, but hated going to school, had just gotten back from Vietnam. This was in the 70s. And he got a job mowing the lawn at a veterinary clinic. And he was waiting for a job to start, which it did. And he had to quit. So he said, my little brother can mow the lawn for you. And again, I was in high school and I was mowing the lawn for one week and the inside person at the vet clinic broke her arm, the, the cleanup person. And they said, would you like to also come in and clean at the end of the day every day? And I said, sure. And that was where my love of it started to actually see it in progress. I decided, yes, this is for me. So there was nothing nothing before that. It was sort of random fluke. And then possibly the world's worst interview process, <laughs> which completely lucked out. Right. And then what did you see next? Like, what was it captivated you? What were you inspired by? I just think I remember first going in and seeing one of the first surgeries was a mammary strip and nearly wanting to chuck my lunch up on my shoes. What did you see? I had a similar experience. I thought, well, I can never be a veterinarian because I think I'm going to vomit every time <laughs> I look at something nasty in the least. Uh, but I, you know, I started to actually, and maybe this is what kind of sealed the deal. I actually started to pay very close attention to what they were doing, how they were tying knots, how they were making a cut. I looked at the details of everything they were doing and suddenly the feelings of nausea were gone. And it was just nothing but interest in learning. Ah, so like keep keeping focused on the detail. Right. That was like a mindfulness to get through the nausea. Right. right. <laughs> I like that. So Mike, keep us on the journey there. So you're, and if you were like me at all, hanging on the end of the vet's exam room table, uh, stuck somewhere between fascination, nausea, and abject boredom. I was falling asleep on the end of that table because I'd usually just come back from rugby training. I was at glucose and energy deprived but what kept your imagination fired up like and, and when did it go from being ah oh, this is kind of interesting to I, i'm kind of this is it i'm going to go down this pathway were there moments or people or things that really sparked you up there right 
Yeah. So the, the senior veterinarian there, there were two veterinarians and they're both really, really good. And, and I'll probably talk more about them later, but the senior veterinarian, uh, his name was Ken Kolka. And he had actually, at the end of World War II on the GI Bill, went to veterinary school. And he, it was listening to the stories. And I mean, they weren't James Harriet-like, but they were still very interesting. The people he had met, the animals, the, the funny incidences he'd been in. I don't really recall any of them, but he had started out in large animals. So the, you know, working on mostly um, dairy farms and so on. And it was just, it just sounded like a fun profession. Do you think that's changed? I think it has changed. I mean, you know, even, of course, I, I read all the James Harriet books when I was a kid. Actually, I shouldn't say when I was a kid, when I decided I was going to become a veterinarian, I found out about them and started reading them. Yep. Even at that point, there was quite the disconnect. You know, there was, you know, people would come in and, you know, it was like, no, I'm not going to charge you anything and whatever. <laughs> it was this kind of unrealistic approach to veterinary medicine, which may be very realistic back in the, the 30s. I don't know. So what was the question again? I have no idea. No, do you think veterinary medicine has changed? Oh, that's right. Has it changed? Yes, it really has changed for the better and for the worse. There's a much more important emphasis on doing things right and giving all options to people with animals and, and so forth. But there's also this idea of, you know, we, it seems like we have to save an animal at any cost to the client and, you know, and to borrow a few lines from Sheila Robertson, it's not just the emotional cost, it's the, the monetary cost, it's the emotional cost, the physical cost, and so on. And we don't take that into account anymore. Or I think we used to when I first got out. Yeah, I wonder, you know, you, you said a word there that really connects with me. And I think just because of the way I've always practiced, or, or I suppose one of the things that I, I'm probably good at in this world and it's it's the stories that the older partners had that were very attractive to you. As you were saying that, I was thinking of the people that I started to see practice with, and it was the stories that they shared as well that I found utterly, utterly captivating. And it, it was rather like you were going on call with, with James Herriot at, at the time. Right. Especially in kind of rural Scotland wasn't really a great deal different, perhaps a couple of degrees colder than rural Yorkshire and possibly a couple of pounds thriftier as well <laughs> if that's even possible it's that fun thing I did a talk with Peter Weinstein called making veterinary medicine fun again and th that's a word that keeps coming up in my mind as I sort of see people laboring a little bit in the profession and not everybody's laboring I don't want to unnecessarily extend that narrative but where are the sources of fun? Like where, when people are seeing others on social media and, and they're playing the comparison game, I didn't ever compare myself in an unhealthy way with, with the Sam Duffs or the, the Sandy Howitts or, or the Fiona Burnetts who were some of my veterinary heroes. I looked up almost adoringly at these people going, my goodness me, if I could occupy like a pinky, pinky fool of, of how awesome these people are, I should be quite happy. But it feels like there's a different game being played now. I'm kind of curious, what did your role models, if that's the right word, how did they you know, keep you 
engaged to the point where you know you're now several years you, know, you graduated in 1980 here you are you're still contributing in a, in a really huge way to the profession so that that suggests very positive engagement with the profession how did they contribute to that and how have you maintained that level of engagement and, and indeed have you maintained that has it been an ebb and a flow maybe you could take us on a journey there yeah so you know when i was in veterinary school I was about a year out. I just started my clinicals and I had a, one of the residents, I mean, looked at me and said, you're never going to make a good veterinarian. (laughs) And to me, that's always, you know, whenever anyone tells me you can't do that, that's inspiration for me to do it. And instead of like some people maybe taking it, going off in a huff and, and saying they don't know what they're talking about, I thought about what they actually had to say and why was that? And I really didn't know what made a good veterinarian, what made a good diagnostician. And then about halfway through my clinicals, I had ophthalmology and his name was Dr. Gary Blanchard. He died of a heart attack several years ago, but he was my role model. And the reason he was, he was very hard on us. And I mean, he wasn't a perfect person. He was an alcoholic. He was disliked by the rest of the staff. He wasn't um, a practicing alcoholic by the end of his life. He had gotten cleaned up. But we would have these cases come in and this English Springer Spaniel would come in with some eye issue and he would make us list at least five different things that English Springer Spaniels had. What else? What do we need to be looking at past the eye? And that was my aha moment of it clicked. It's not laser focused on the problem. It's looking at everything that's coming in. So fast forward a few more months, I went, got back in one of my last clinical rotations with the same person that told me I would never be a veterinarian, a good veterinarian. About three days into the rotation, she looked at me and said, what happened? (laughs) you're amazing. And I said, Dr. Blanchard happened, which all the senior clinicians got a sour look on their face because no one liked them. But the reality was, is that he made me a good veterinarian, the one I am today. I would love to dig into a couple of things there just a bit more if, if you could. The first one was, what was the reason the resident said what they said in the first instance. Do you recall what that was? What were they judging you against criteria-wise? Yeah, I couldn't see it at the time. But then again, once I was with Dr. Blanchard, I just realized I was very book smart, but I was, you know, maybe thinking more like an engineer and not a little more laterally. And I was just like, this is the problem. This is what we have to deal with. And, you know, ignore the rest of the animal. Let's look at, let's look at the kidney and, you know, ignore everything else. Cause that's what I thought I was supposed to do. Yeah. That's, that was the sort of outcome of the, the way you'd been taught or what you'd taken from it. Right. Right. Ignore the possible comorbidities. Yeah. Right. And are you able to summarize it? I certainly get a sense of one of them where Dr. Blanchard was, sounds like quite direct and made you think outside of the, the target zone that you were getting laser focused on. But what else to get a night and day difference? That's quite a dramatic statement that the resident said to you. It's more than just a differential list there. Right. Well, you know, I I think, um, you know, it made me take a look at myself and how I was approaching problems. 
And I realized that me having, you know, memorized most of Ettinger's book wasn't really good enough. You know, you know, it was like knowing all the words and not knowing how to use them. And I really paid attention to how other people work through cases. How does Dr. Mike Petty work through a case these days? Like what's, is it the same approach? How would you advise or how would you teach somebody now with all years of experience to walk through that? I would say that my approach is to take a look at every case that comes in. When we get out of veterinary school, we have zero pattern recognition. Every case that comes in is a hundred possibilities. And as we go through our career, we have pattern recognition. This is a good thing because it helps us streamline our veterinary practice from day to day. It's also a really bad thing because we have a tendency to try to make the facts fit the preconceived idea in our head. There are some cases where, you know, I hear the history, I read my technician notes, and I already have a diagnosis when I go in, and nine times out of 10, I'm right. But you always have to assume that maybe you're wrong and maybe there's something else going on. And so for me, becoming a good clinician is, first of all, listening to every single member of the veterinary team. And when I say listening to every single member, from my intake person, my receptionist office manager, my technician, but also listen to the client, listen to the dog, and listen to yourself and place yourself last in the importance of all of that. Because all those other things, you can't do anything without anyone else's input. And if you place yourself last, it's slightly humbling, but it also allows you to go back to the client and say, listen, I think this is what's going on. However, you know, I might be wrong. And, you know, this is my list of differentials. And this is why I think that we should treat or look for A, B, and C first. But if that doesn't work, you need to come back and talk to me and tell me why you think I might be wrong, why you think maybe there's something else going, I'm right on that, but there's something else going wrong, whatever. And it's a process. So, you know, I can remember probably about 20 years or so ago, I was listening to an interview on national public radio, and they were talking about how the difference between Western medicine and Native American medicine and Native American medicine, the conversation usually starts out with, how are you doing? What's going on at home? Any issues with other members of your family? Things along that line. And it was kind of eye-opening because we don't really do that in medicine. We don't consider the home environment so much. So I'm not saying I do that with every client that comes in, but if there's something that sounds like a behavioral issue or something like that, that's the time to have that conversation. Why isn't the animal getting better? Is there something going on at home that you can't even give the medication? Things like that. It's funny. I, I went to a physio appointment recently and it was really, really different as an appointment to to previous physios that I'd been to, where the physio was like, where do you hurt? Uh, have you had any previous injuries? Okay, jump up on the table and I'll do an exam. Whereas this appointment was exactly as you just described. It was a very deep dive into everything that was going on in my life, from you know life changes to partnerships to all the stress triggers. It was really geared toward looking for stress. And it was back pain, that I was principally there for. 
and there was right. so little time spent actually doing the any physio work because in the right. end she just sort of kind of sh- shook a slightly you know i don't know if sympathetic or just like pitying face at me just going you are just super stressed out my friend you need to chill here's some exercises and mostly there were mindfulness and almost no back stretching at all it was just fascinating but it also helped fix the problem right it's a holism as you were talking i was just you know i, I was quite keen to maybe explore a little bit more about because that's yeah I, I like the way you you know you said something there and just you were it came across very honestly and very openly like here's what i think i don't know this is what we should do based on that if it's right great if it's not there may be more that we want to do you're kind of managing the client's expectation there i've kind of got a bit of a two-part question and the, the first part is i was going to ask out what has been your experience of clients during over the last two three years yeah it's been difficult we've had just a lot of angry upset clients you know and they're angry about a lot of things yeah and you know we try not to take it personally we realize life has been very stressful for them at the same time some clients seem to have taken this as a license to you know move forward with their um assholery (laughs) (laughs) and um you know that can be really hard to deal with and we have had to Probably once a week, we ask a client, where would you like us to send your your records? You know, because we just can't, we can't come to a common meeting. What sort of behaviors are you seeing in clients that will like, what behaviors will get you to give a client the, uh, the ejector button? It's usually abuse to our staff. You know, they, they rip into them for no apparent reason. And, you know, we have a ethical position statement on our, our website and that says, you know, we will not tolerate it. And we, we don't yeah. we just don't tolerate it. And, you know, but we also have clients that, you know, that argue with us. We had one person that went ahead and said, you know, it starts to second guess what you're doing, your suggestions. You know, I, this one woman, I remember she said, I'm a mother and I had two kids. So therefore I know what's wrong with my dog, you know, and I'm like, okay, where's the leap there, you know? And we kept her on until we worked through the problem, but then we're like, now, now, because we didn't want to abandon her with a sick animal in the middle of it, because we know it takes weeks to get in somewhere else. But then we told her, you need to go somewhere else with your next issue. Um, You can't do that. The other really big thing is, and I I think this is just a plague on the veterinary profession, Google reviews. People get so upset about stuff. I mean, for no apparent reason. And and oftentimes it's of their own making. And I think that's why they get so upset, but they fail to recognize it themselves. We had one older woman who begged to come in and she's, my dog is coughing. I had an older dog. It's coughing. I think it caught a cold. You know, can I, you please see it? I'm really worried about it. And we were just absolutely booked up. So we double booked her and got the dog in and the dog you know had this horrific heart murmur we took a a radiograph and it was going into congestive heart failure and she said well i can't afford to treat it i want you to put it to sleep 
I said, well, you know, we don't do euthanasias. We send all of our euthanasias to, to lap of love and you'll have to call them. We get this horrific review from her, her son, her daughter, everyone. They all wrote reviews about, you know, what, you know, why didn't we, you know, say this before she even came in? And I'm thinking, okay, so someone calls with a coughing dog. We're supposed to say, uh, by the way, if it's something serious, we can't put it to sleep. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's a ridiculous request, you know. So when these review, I don't know the right thing. And, you know, they say just ignore these things, but I often can't. And when there's a really bad review, sometimes I write back sympathetically an answer, especially if I feel like maybe it was a fragile person who just didn't understand. But when someone's being a real jerk, I'll try to point out everything that's wrong because people read these reviews yep. before they come. Yep say, well, you know, we offered this, we offered that, you declined it all. And then six months later, you wrote a bad review because the animal eventually died, you know? So, uh, you know, what can we do about that? I think that's probably where we, you know, I, I, I very much doubt there is a business that exists where they're not aware that, that their clients are more challenging. And, and we're probably challenging clients in somebody else's business at the minute as well we're all kind of a bit stressed out but i think we're also probably at the point where you're reading the reviews and you're gauging the response as much as you're gauging the review because the the absolute mentalists we just all know right mm -hmm. well they're just out there and you can you could look at their profile and see what level of asshattery they have been you know bestowing on how many other businesses and pretty quickly work out the common denominator isn't all of the businesses <laughs> But it is hard to take home, isn't it? What do you do to process that? Like, get, I feel like fear and a fear of getting backlash or receiving some kind of abuse. You know, I'm actually thinking of this practice. Oh, it was up in Maine, isn't it? That the uh, that there's a heck of a lot of fuss about recently, where the dog was, you know, dog was surrendered to the practice. Right, right. And and ethically, I feel like that could be a bit of a murky area ethically. So I don't want to get into that, but the impact, the, the damage to the individuals involved is, is huge. Do you have a way of processing that you get, get over these things? You mentioned that you find them quite hard to take. Yeah, I, I did initially. I mean, I honestly would sometimes wake up at three in the morning and, and think about what could I have done, whatever. But I don't want to get into veterinary practice where I'm like proactively trying to do something to prevent a bad review, that's going to interfere with my practice of veterinary medicine. So, uh, you know, I, I think what has helped me the most is to write a reasonable response to bad reviews. And one of the things that I've noticed, and it usually shuts, I, I usually don't get a response if I point this out, is, you know, most bad reviews, people don't have their real name up. They have a fake name or they have initials or, you know, some moniker that they use. And I'll point that out. And I said, you know, if you were really wanted to, you know, have this as a discussion, use your name and we can discuss this. But you're hiding behind this to call someone out and no one ever comes forward with their real name. <laughs> no, it's backward. I think hopefully we can get to a point where we can not to minimize because sometimes you know reviews are still feedback they're painful and, yeah. and but they're weaponized feedback rather than helpful feedback in some cases but you 
you can get to the point of just comparing ridiculous reviews and, and actually finding them quite amusing. Like we have, and it was a painful circumstance to go through, but we do have one client that leaves us a review every anniversary. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah. We come to expect that. Yeah. Okay. So that's sort of dealing with, with clients and, and clients being more challenging. How would you advise, let's imagine I am but a, a youthful, a youthful individual starting out my career. What tips would you give me for handling or working with clients? You know, just thinking back to Dr. Blanchard, what tips have you amassed over the, your career that you found to be just universally useful in managing client interactions? Listen, hear them out. Let them finish what they have to say. If you don't, they feel like they're being marginalized in the process. And sometimes it's really hard because you can see where the story is going, but let them have their say. That's certainly at the beginning. And at the end of it, talk to them about what they said, repeat what they said, repeat your findings, and ask them, does this sound like a plan going forward? Because, you know, clients sometimes have a different idea of what's going to happen. So in in my practice, um, I do some acupuncture, I do some rehab, and, you know, I'm mostly focused on pain management. And I can remember when I first started out with acupuncture, I had this dog in. This dog actually just recently passed away. The dog's name was Sonny. And the client came in and she said, you know, Dr. Petty, you know, I used to go for walks on my dogs and now I just, we can't do it anymore. There's just something wrong. And, you know, even the way the dog was walking in, it had that butt wiggle that looked like it was, had hip dysplasia. We confirmed it with radiographs. And, you know, so we put the dog like on Rimadil. We started some acupuncture. By the third session, the dog came in, it looked great. And I said, your dog looks great. And she looked at me and said, it's a complete failure. I said, well, what are you talking about? She says, well, we used to go on these 15-mile hikes every day, and, you know, now we're back up to three, but I can't go on the 15-mile hikes anymore. You know, and I never asked her, what do you want? What, and it's what we call an outcome measure. What do you want to see happen at the end of treatment? Mm-hmm. So we had that conversation at that point and was able to flip that complete failure into this is what you got. Yeah, what's important to you about blank Right. So I think that is also really important. And that goes back to what I first talked about with, you know, we have to treat everything to the nth degree. So if I could give a word of advice to my younger self, it would be, you know, ask the client what they want at the end of this. I mean, sometimes it's easy, you know, the dog's got an ear infection. I want the ear infection to go away, but you know, it's not, they're all your cases aren't that straightforward. And sometimes it's, you know, even with ear infections, it's like, I don't ever want an ear infection to come back. Well, you know, that might be a conversation right then and there to say, well, your dog has underlying allergies. We'll be dealing with this for the life of your dog, you know. Okay. I want to maybe segue a little bit into the work that you specifically do. And maybe a good way to do that. I mentioned before you graduated in, in 1980. You have got a lot of letters after your name. Like I, I, anyone that's that, and I'm not sure. I kind of almost want to see like it's like a 
a qualification egg and spoon race between you and Sheila Robertson because that's all you've, you've got. You've got the alphabet cover now. Aside from looking like a frustrating night at the Scrabble board with your qualification list after your name, what are each of these qualifications you have, and why did you pursue them? You're clearly, you know, a love of learning. Uh, a love of growth but what are each of them so i've got the dvm i'm good with so i've got the cvpp cvma ccrt caapm that's what i, I mean by a frustrating day <laughs> so basically the first thing i did there was you know when i i decided i really wanted to focus my practice on pain management i looked around and there was nothing there was like really nothing out there so I actually went and got this thing from the this American Academy of Pain Management. And so it was a human certification. And I can remember getting the book to study. And the book was probably weighed, you know, about four kilos. It was like huge. And, you know, read through all of that. And I had to go to the special testing site and got it and got that qualification. So I knew a whole bunch about human, I, and I do still know a whole bunch about human pain, but it really didn't, a lot of it didn't translate into the veterinary field. Then there's an organization called the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management, and they came up with a test in order to get certified in pain management. So that's another one of them. And then, you know, I got certified in rehabilitation and I got certified in acupuncture. So I think that pretty much camps up the important things. All right, cool. I'm really fascinated about the decision, what made you move toward pain management? Because you, you had your own practice as a general practice, right? And then a decision came to focus in and narrow the focus. What was behind that decision? Well, you know, sometimes this is a hard story to tell, but it was 1984. I'd been four years out of veterinary school and my father had died the year before and my mother was dying of cancer. And she was in the hospital and she was in so much pain. And uh, it had gotten into her bones. She, every time she coughed, a rib would break. I mean, it was, she was just falling apart. Goodness. And the night she died, I went to the, the nurse on duty and I said, can you please give her some morphine? And she came back 15 minutes later and said, no, because there might be some respiratory depression and we can't have that. And it was like she's going to be dead within hours. What does it matter? You know? Mm -hmm. and, and at that point I said, I will never be that uncaring doctor that uh, is putting, you know, a fear of a lawsuit ahead of, you know, what's right for the patient. And that really set me on my journey towards pain management. But, you know, at that time there were no real options. I, I think, the other thing too is that, and this is going back even a little further, when I was working for you know my uh, Dr. Kolka and Dr. Baylor back when I was in high school, they were really forward thinking in terms of pain management. They were using ketamine, they were using morphine, they used local blocks, and I'm like, this is amazing. These animals wake up; they're not in pain. And then I went to veterinary school, and the only time I ever saw morphine used. This is the honest to God truth. The only time I ever saw morphine used was we were in class and they talked about morphine and the doctor, we had, they had a dog up there and he gave an injection. He said, I've just given this dog a lethal dose of morphine. 
Aaron's like, like that. And we all sat there in horror and watched as this dog got worse and worse and worse. And then he pulled out naloxone and gave it and the dog woke up and we all clapped. And, you know, that was it. Never during a surgery. Never did I see a local anesthetic. Nothing, nothing. Just the inhaling. And I, I argued, I said, there's a better way that, you know, that increases the risk. It does this, it does that. You know, now we know exactly the opposite. The more pain management you can give, the less the risk is to the patient. So, so I think those two things, you know, really made me realize that something has to, to be done in my own career. Yeah. Thank you for sh- sharing them. It's obviously quite a painful story. I actually wanted to ask a really naughty question to start. Sure. <laughs> I'm going to ask that because I, I will always ask the stupidest question in the room. How would you define, like, what is pain? Like, I know it's been a while since I've been at university, but I'm, I'm, so I've got an idea of how I would answer that question, but I'm really keen to hear how you would answer it because things have moved a long way along in our understanding of it. Yeah. Pain is what the patient says it is. It's that simple. And if a patient feels like this is intolerable, then it's intolerable. You know, I hate the word drama queen. Oh, that dog's a drama queen. I hate it because you know what? We don't know. Just like, well, you probably know that there's a certain subpopulation of of Scots with red hair that have a much higher incidence of pain, of feeling pain. And it's real for them. And, you know, if they react to it, then that's pain. So it is what the patient says it is. I actually did not know that. I thought you were going to say the exact opposite because all of the ginger-haired Scots I know are farmers who basically only go to hospital when there is literally some sort of cervical displacement that's enough they can no longer feel their toes. And they're still quite angry about it. Yeah, it's only broken, but the bone is sticking out. So maybe I could go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. So... So we have come an awful long way in terms of, you know, I'm thinking back in the days where, you know, maybe even dogs wouldn't, you know, they'd have got an ACP injection so they wouldn't be a drama queen, had their induction agent, had their inhalant, been recovered and then sit, monged in a kennel and then finally yelling and going home, a sort of cowered up, tense, shivering wreck. So we've come a heck of a long way. I would love to just explore the sort of evolution. And I know that could be a very long answer, but, you know, go for it. And particularly, maybe you can bring us to, like, what are the most important things now that we know about pain control? And and what would be the most important things that if you could have every practitioner just have this in their heads, that would be the most valuable things to them, the most valuable information they could bring to their day-to-day job? So, you know, in, let's talk about acute pain first, because as I always say, acute pain is easy to diagnose and it's easy to treat. You know, we have this, you know, there, there are grimace scales. There's all sorts of scales that are out there that just really tell us how an animal's in pain, even if you're not aware of it. You know, whether it's, you know, dilated pupils or the way the ear set is or, or whatever it might be. So those things are easy to learn. And if you have to start somewhere... I think it is really incumbent on us as veterinarians to have the animals that are directly under our care without the owner there that we have to do a good job because no one is out. You're their voice right then and there. Okay. But going on to chronic pain, chronic pain is both hard to diagnose and hard to treat. 
And it's hard to diagnose because, you know, especially dogs, they just, they soldier on, you know, they, they do what they, this is my life and I'm just going to do it, whatever. So this really does require, and this goes back to that whole team approach I was talking about before. This requires input from everyone on your team. I mean, you know, the receptionist, you know, is probably the most important person in this because they're going to hear things. And, uh, you know, so the client calls and says, I need to come in. My dog needs its vaccinations. And can I have an appointment? It's like, sure. Can you come in at, you know, 10 o'clock on Tuesday? Like, well, no, I, I need to wait until after three because my dog can't get into the car by itself. And, you know, my son has to be home to help me get it in. So that's all you're coming in for is that is, you know, <laughs> that kind of a, a thing. And they, the receptionist needs to make a note, can't get in the car by itself. That's the beginning of the journey, the diagnostic journey. And so with that kind of information, there are pain metrics out there, survey metrics to decide if an animal's in pain or not. And some of them are really complicated some of them are really easy. Pick an easy one because, you know, these days, you know, everyone has the attention span of a, a gnat these days, it seems. And, you know, so there are like five and six questionnaires that can be given that will then kind of point towards the way. And I think one of the things that I've, I've learned is, A, you can never ask a client if their animal's in pain because if they say no, then your only option is either to tell them that they're stupid or a liar, right? So you have to get them to tell you that their animal's in pain. And the questionnaire is perfect because they fill it out and say, well, because of the answers you've given on this, you're telling me your dog's in pain. Mm. That battle is done, right? And then, you know, finally, then, you know, we look at the dog, radiographs, whatever, and then, you know, again, the veterinarian is the last person on the list, the least important, but also at this stage, once the diagnosis is made, the most important, because, you know, we have to just find something that works. We have to let them know that this is not a, a treatment we're going to do and the dog's better and it's going to go on its way. This is not going to go away. If it's arthritis, it's going to be a lifelong issue. And this may be a, a giant assumption, so please correct it if it's if it's miles wrong, but I'm, I'm assuming that, that arthritis and, and perhaps dental pain are two of the most common things that you would see in your line of work. And neurologic pain. Yeah. So like back issues. Yeah. So I was going to ask, and it was particularly the orthopedic source of pain with the joint disease or degenerative joint disease. I remember when I, especially when I was young in my practice, I worked, I worked in a, a, a neuro and orthopedic referral practice, <clears throat> a great place to start my career. And I remember my boss, Malcolm Ness telling me, like you've got to do, I'm not going to do his Geordie accent. Yes, I will. I said, Davey, you've got to do the x-rays before you give the meds. Get yourself a diagnosis. I've gone on Jamaican there now. That's awful. Yeah. I'll, I'll never get, I'll never, I'll never hear the end of that. Sorry, Malcolm. Just offending all my mentors now. But I found that very, very hard as a graduate because it's expensive to do radiographic workup on a dog that came in for, you know, for being a bit lame. I, again, uh, and I feel like I'm, I'm trying to get you to coach me how to say this better. <laughs> but how essential is it from your point of view to actually achieve a diagnosis, not just a presumptive diagnosis? And how impactful is it on the eventual outcome have you found? 
and yeah. and uh, you know in other cases where you've been referred where if they just did the radiographs themselves you know you, you would have saved everybody a whole lot of, of trouble how do you convince owners most effectively to say yes to that as a recommendation well i, I think i have an advantage in that i use i do acupuncture and we do i learned a western medical based acupuncture so not the the chinese stuff where they you know look at the tongue color and take a pulse and so on and i say in order for me to know where to put these needles i need to see and i can't do that without radiographs and because i do have a lot of pain patients come to me for you know treatment with acupuncture but you know maybe that's not even that fair because when a patient has has found me out and they're coming to me because they already know the animal's in pain they're already willing to do everything mm. so think about my vaccine client I talk about the importance of radiographs and I talk about the importance of knowing, you know, so the reason the dog is limping on this leg may also be partly involved because the dog is got a different, a problem in a different limb. And, you know, it's best for us to know this, but I'm not going to withhold treatment if they don't do it. But I do tell them that if we are not getting progress within three or four weeks, then I'm going to insist on radiographs. I think one of the things that really helped me out was I really held out a long time going from analog to digital on the radiographs. And partly because I would get these referrals in with these digital radiographs I couldn't even read. And I remember I sent an orthopedic case to a a specialty clinic and I said, you know, sorry about my kind of like MacGyvered like referral of the film, but I put the radiograph up on a viewer that I'd taken and then took a picture of it with my iPhone and then emailed it to him. And he said, are you kidding? This is better than 90% of the films I get in. So I waited a really long time until I felt like, and I actually ended up buying a human system that I felt actually got good films. So anyways, long story short, I think one of the things, when that went digital, we made a decision that it no longer costs me X dollars every time I put a piece of film through the thing. I'm just charging one fee, whether I take two films or I take 20. And I think other veterinarians need to do this because I get referrals and they'll have a single lateral whole dog radiograph (laughs) to me. And it's like useless. And then trying to convince the owner, we need to redo this, you know? So they're not always essential. So that's interesting. So you charge uh, a single fee and then you'll take as many radiographs. Is it like a radiography fee that you charge and then you'll charge, take yeah. as many shots after that? Yeah, as many as, I, as, many as I, I feel like is necessary. And do you do that for a body region or, sorry to get nerdy on this, but do you do it for a body region or do you do that per patient, per occasion you're radiographing? Yeah, per patient, per occasion. Do you charge a, a higher amount than, let's say, a lot of practices would do, like a first X-ray? We used to do them by exposure, right? Like so, first X-ray exposure and then subsequent view or exposure after that, or cassette back in the day, and you could rack up an enormous amount of. I, I remember my my second boss, Graham Peck. I would ne- never. My ambition was to one day go to him with a set of radiographs and him just go, "Cool, you've got what you need there." And I think it was a, a game he played where he would simply go, 
oh, have you got that one? You'd go like, have you got this sort of, you know, the 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 angled shot of this, or have you got this one? And I was like, seriously, like I, you you're making these views up now. Like I've got everything you asked me for last time, and you're still asking me for another two X-rays. It, I, never once did I I get all the right views, but it would sort of put you off trying to do too much, and you you would end up massaging the figures because you're like. I haven't quoted for all these views. Right. How did you arrive at that decision and how did you go about structuring it? So financially it works for your practice as well as for the practice, the owner. Yeah. So I think the first time, the first thing I ever did for that kind of a thing was I used to charge for like when I would do a spay, I had, you know, from, you know, one to 25 pounds, it was this much. And from 26, and everyone would always have this idea of how much their dog weighed. And then they found out it was three pounds over and we'd get in these arguments. And it was like, I'm charging one fee. I'm just picking the highest fee and I'm charging. Keep it simple. Then they're going to do it. And, you know, and it relieved a lot of stress in my life. But I think as when it comes to the radiographs, there's a little bit of that because people want to know exactly how much, but also, you know, as veterinarians, it's not like, you know, we're at the the top of the income food chain, you know, we're not, you know, and so we're always like trying to save our clients some money. And I think we try, you know, too often, you know, it's like, if you have to charge for a radiograph, maybe you're going to take that one less film that you really should have and we're going to miss things because I've found that as we have taken more radiographs, it's like, oh, look at this little thing over here. You know, there's a, a nodule in the lung. We were looking at the back, but, you know, we decided, oh, let's do the cervical spine as well, even though there's not any pain. And, you know, here's a nodule in the lung. So there's certainly some advantages to doing it that way as well. Yeah. Okay, so moving on perhaps uh, and getting back onto pain, I'm quite keen to hear like every discipline's kind of got their trigger things that people say that drive the people who know best a bit mad. Like, so what are the myths about pain that they really need to die? We really need to put those to bed that you hear most often. Yeah, so I call them myths and misconceptions. And I think the number one myth that I hear from people is that, you know, my dog is not in pain because it's not crying out. And, and I always point out that if you know someone with arthritis, do they, every time they take a step, do they go, ow, ow, ow with every step, you know, I think one of the big misconceptions is, you know, my dog's just old, but, you know, you see examples all the time of old dogs that are still competing and doing everything else. So it's, it's more of an excuse than a, than really anything else. So I think those are probably the two really big ones. You know, when it comes to cats, you know, it's about my cat isn't limping. Well, cats don't limp, you know, because a, it's too cool to limp. (laughs) They, They don't want to. But also, you know, in cats, if it hurts, they're just not going to do it. So, you know, what I, I usually tell people is that, yes, they're not limping, but have you noticed that they're not moving cat-like anymore? Cats have this grace and fluidity of movement as they get around in the world. And that starts to become less and less apparent as they become painful. So 
those are probably the, the big ones. Okay. And I like that analogy of, you know, an arthritic person doesn't tell you they're sore every single step they take. Right. It did make me wonder at what age, I don't know if you do this as well, Mike, maybe this, this is, this is kind of a little N equals to uh, micro study here. Did you notice an age where when you sit down, you start to make the noise? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure when that happened, but I noticed myself doing that. I think it was the wrong side of 40. And I'm like, I sat down and I went, I just did that thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's just, it just feels great to sit down at this age. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the, the dogs have an equivalent sort of noise. You can kind of hear it in those older dogs as well. They do groan a little bit. When so, they yeah, I, I call it the deflating tire sound <laughs> that they make. When they down like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay. Now, so you have written and uh, published a book. Have you just done one, Mike? Yes, I've just done one. The reason I ask that is because, and it's, it's a slightly loaded question, actually, but let's talk about this one first. So it's it's Dr. Petty's Pain Relief for Dogs, the Complete Medical and Integrative Guide to Treating Pain. You can probably see where the, have you just done one question comes from, <laughs> a, a, a group there that's omitted, um, and I'm fairly sure Susan Little would, would give me a hard time if I didn't ask about the cats, but let's, that's not where I'm going with this question. So in the book, you guide your readers through three three areas. So determining whether their dog is in pain, locating a vet who is capable of treating those issues, and then a review of what treatments are available. And particularly, and this is, this is where I find quite interesting, is which ones are worth pursuing and which ones are not. Now, I wanted to kind of dig into that last point because I, I, I imagine there's a bit of a context basis to this as to you know, which modalities are effective at best at which kinds of pain. That would be a great place for us to explore just now. But I'm also quite interested about things that are seen as a bit more alternative. You know, acupuncture is probably a bit more accepted by people, but things like uh, laser therapy, CBD oil, uh, things like that. These are slightly more new things you know, I've got a pot on the side there of uh, turmeric powder and pepper. You know, there's so many things out there. Which of them are valuable? Which of them are more, you know, things that probably we should not be focusing time and attention on? Yeah. So if I can step back one moment, I hated the title of the book. W.W. <laughs> Norton made me name it that way. But um, I really wanted to na name the book, Your Dog is in Pain and You Don't Even Know It. Oh, that's a great title. I know it, but they're like, no. <laughs> so, you know, I felt so lucky to actually have a major publisher that I wasn't going to argue. I figured they know best. So, you know, what's useful and what's not? Obviously, these days, you know, NSTEDs still stand up as the gold standard for treating pain. And, you know, there's a bunch of them out there. Uh, I don't think any one of them sticks its head above the rest of the pack. They all, they all work fairly well. It comes down to, you know, there's one, and I'm not going to name names, but there's one that I've always had trouble with animals vomiting on. 
you know, and other people haven't, you know, and, I, and so I've just gravitated towards a couple of them. You know, on the flip side, the newest thing, and, and you guys have it over there already, is the, the anti-NGF antibodies, which I've been in the FDA studies that have helped develop them. And I've, I've so I've gotten to use them on an experimental basis, but, you know, I think are, are amazing. But there's there's no one silver bullet. You know, that's not going to fix it for everybody, and including the NSAIDs. So, you know, it, it all goes back to, you know, what we've been hearing for the past 20 years, multimodal. You know, you really got to look at several different things. For me, I don't know how I would practice pain medicine without acupuncture. It's just, it's so astounding. And I get some result in over 90% of my dogs and cats. I get great results in like at least 75% of them. And that includes neuro cases. I mean, I, I can often make a down dog walk within two weeks um, with no surgery, just acupuncture. So can I ask you two questions about that? Yeah. And these are coming from a place of, of curiosity. What is the mode of action? How does it work in its simplest form? And how do you measure a successful output? Animal walking again, that's a fairly clear measurable. How much of it is treatment on the animal? How much of it is treatment on the owner? In effect, a kind of placebo effect where the owner is guiding you and on therapy. And, and as I say, I'm not, I do not intend, and I hope it's not coming across this yeah. way, because I go see an acupuncturist and it is a Chinese one. And I lay there thinking, I just have to forget that I'm a scientist and pretend that my chi is unblocking and la la la. And I'm basically the good that this is doing me is I'm falling asleep on a table and I hope I don't jump up and stab myself in the needles deep right. into my tissue. <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not saying this to trip you up or anything like that. I, I'm genuinely curious. Like how, how does this shit work? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was going through, when I was taking my classes, so at the time, you know, it was like pre, you know, Zoom classes and things like that. So it was being taught in Colorado. So for one week every month, for four months in a row, I had to get on a plane, fly to Colorado, take classes, come back, practice for the next three weeks. It was really a big burden to learn how to do it. Now they do it almost all online. But, you know, one of the advantages of that is we were putting needles in animals like on day three of my class. And I remember coming back and, and like probably for the first month or two, every time I'd put a needle in an animal, again, the scientific part of me, even though this was science-based acupuncture, I'd be putting the needle in going, this is never going to work. <laughs> How could it possibly work? <laughs> and clients would come back in. And, and I, I remember I had one client, it was really funny. And he, he came in and he, he's this kind of like, this man's man and he's got a hunting dogs and he goes hunting, and he goes fishing and, you know, and he, his dog was having some kind of issue. I don't remember what it was, but I said, we need to try acupuncture. So I put some acupuncture needles in his dog and he sat there rolling his eyes the entire time. And he left and five minutes later he came back in. He goes two, 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake for a witch because my dog just jumped into the back of my truck for the first time in a year. <laughs> wow. 
So, you know, we, but again, there is a placebo that's going on because I have clients come in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's working. And I'm like thinking, I think it's getting worse, you know? Right. But, you know, you never know when that next session is going to really help out. So that was part one of the question. Was there part two? Well, part one was how does it work? Oh, how does it work? Part two is what are the, you know, what are the determinants of of success? But, but actually it's the second part there. I kind of want to know. Okay, how do you put these things together and what circumstances and what sorts of combinations do you go for? You know, for again, I'm thinking of from people listening, like the common things they might see, what modalities can they put together? Is there a, a, a guide or, or is this very much, a, okay, you take it on a very individual patient basis with what they can tolerate or what their owners are willing to, like like Dr. Sheila said, like what are their, their budgets that they've got emotionally, financially, time, all of those things. Exactly. So, you know, I really like to integrate acupuncture into an animal unless it is obvious to me from all the radiographs that I previously took that there's severe arthritis in, you know, 12 different places. I I just can't stick that many needles in a dog. And then I'm more likely to go to non-acupuncture things, just medication, but also looking at things like weight loss and so on. But also, yeah, it comes down to time and money. So, you know, we, but we have some dogs that are needle phobic and you just can't, can't do it. It's, it's pretty rare. Cats the same way. Um, I like to call it catapuncture, not acupuncture. It's always one needle too many. You don't know it until you put it in. Um, and then it's game over. But also that, you know, how often can they come back? Like I really love laser therapy. I have a class for companion laser and it works really, really well. But at the initial, you've got to go every other day until the animal starts showing response. And sometimes that's like 10 visits and then it works great. But, you know, that's a lot of time on the the client's part. Okay. I, so I'm going to ask a question for the benefit of my practice now. I've been a fan of laser for a number of years and I had a, I love the companion laser. I just couldn't afford it. Yeah. In my first practice, and so I had a, I had a K laser. Yeah. And I, and we got a new practice, got a new laser, more modern, and love it. And so I, I've used it, but I've sort of had to suspend my disbelief. Like I saw the sort of Cochrane had sort of changed their opinion from, you know, yeah, nah, to meh, you know, and and hadn't really gotten a long way beyond that. So my team just don't buy it and if they don't buy it you can't get them to use it so that that laser is currently sitting in my home (laughs) and uh i'm not even sure if i should say this out loud but basically i use it to treat me and my various ailments and joint ills or whatever i think it's brilliant so i read all the literature i didn't believe half of it at least as to why it worked but i saw incredible response particularly in wound healing uh, back pain you know arthritis just seemed to be incredible. Even radiographic changes in uh, Westy lung, um, yeah. fibrosing alveolitis. So, Dr. Mike Petty, can you pitch me? Bearing in mind, I don't really need to pitch, but pe- maybe perhaps people listening. Like, wh- why should we be taking class four lasers? Or, or maybe I'm loading that. Maybe I shouldn't throw class threes under the bus. But tell us what we don't know about laser and why we should be using it. And then, you know, you start to talk about treatment modality there. Love to, love to hear a bit more about that. 
So I think with, with laser, the more we look at it, the more we realize what it can do. And, you know, it's kind of like some of the CBD research that's going on right now. You know, it's playing with doses and types and so forth. And, you know, you find out, wow, if you give it it this way, then it does this. And, and laser is the same thing. And I listened to a lecture from this uh, woman. She's a PhD at the National Institute of Health, and she works in Bethesda, Maryland. They treat a lot of injured war veterans with laser therapy. And for some of them, it's the only thing that gets them out of their pain. It's real. It's real. And you got to believe in it. And, you know, one of the things that I tell people, you know, my staff doesn't believe in it. All you need is one staff member with an issue and you treat that animal and it gets better than everyone sees it and they're on board and and chances are it will get better i mean there's always the off chance that maybe it won't work but you know i had a, a visiting surgeon sort of peripatetic surgeon come into my practice and he he'd had multiple you know a major spinal surgery a fusion and, and you know so he you know he's, yeah. he couldn't move his his uh cervical spine independently of what was below or above and he just looked in such pain one day when he came in i said like how are you like how are you feeling and it's like oh i'm in agony and i said okay and I, I just couldn't bear to watch him in that much pain i said look do you want to do you, like i try the laser on you if you want and he's like i <laughs> <laughs> will like you know, like just try it the least it's going to do is nothing you know the mo- like the worst that's going to happen is nothing yeah like so he did his surgery which seemed like a prudent thing to do, get the important thing out of the way first. And I lasered his back and 10 minutes later, he called me up and he said, where'd I get a laser? Yeah. Like my pain's gone. Yeah. Now my, my wife has a, a spinal stenosis at C6 and she, you know, she was doing everything the doctors were telling her to do. And it's like, okay, time for me to take over your pain management. And uh, we lasered her back and, you know, two sessions later, she's like, this is the best I've felt in a year, you know? Amazing. So how does it work? So, uh, you know, magic. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. Lumos. It's, it's really complicated. Magic's a good answer, but it's complicated, you know, but it's all about stimulating mitochondria, increasing blood flow. It has some direct anti-inflammatory effects. Um, it works on many different levels, kind of like acupuncture. You know, yeah. it works. Acupuncture works at ten different things. You know, local effects, distant effects, brain effects. So it's it's not an easy answer. And in terms of best things to, I'm super curious about this. Like, so we're not being sponsored by anybody to have this conversation. I just want to make that really clear at the moment. But I am genuinely curious about this technology, what are the things that respond best in your experience? And, and what are the best protocols that, that we should use for say, you know, let's say like lumbosacral pain or joint pain. And how do you stave off the boredom of having to like, let's say multiple locations that you've got polyarthritis of some kind or multiple joints being affected with degenerative joint disease. Like, it takes a while to do all of these treatments. Like, how do you charge it, stave off the boredom of doing it? Like, who does it? Yeah, my technicians do it. 
you know, I've had a laser for years. And um, when I, the, the story of treating my wife, I had to go get my technician and say, so how do I turn this on? You know, and the technicians seem to really like it. You know, they just, I think they, they really feel like they're really doing something important for the animal. And no one like, you know, disappears into the bathroom when the laser treatment comes in, you know, they all, they, they jump to it. So it's not like the photographs of the website then. Yeah. In terms of sort of treatment protocols, you start to mention, you know, sometimes you have to be very aggressive every other, other day. What sort of circumstances or, or what sort of patterns do you have to treat various things? Is that something you're willing to share or? It's like giving away the secret sauce. I don't want you to. Yeah. I think the intensity of the pain is, you know, important and it's the how and how much we're going to do and how often we're going to do it. Also, you know, my feeling of the, the proximity to a euthanasia decision by the owner also sometimes influences how I'm going to aggressively, I'm going to treat something, you know, where okay. I can throw everything at it and say, please give me at least 10 days to try to get them better. And is that a sort of amount of time with laser you would say, you know, doing every other day treatment over 10 days that you wouldn't give up on it until you've had that point? Right, right. You know, we, we try to get to some kind of an agreement with the, the client. Obviously, these things are fluid. If a dog's getting worse, then I'm not going to argue with them that they need to stick it out. But, and this is especially true in the neuro cases where they're just screaming in pain and they're really miserable. Yeah. What things have you the most excited about the future of pain management? When I um, was in veterinary school, I really wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I just loved the idea of, you know, here's a broken bone, put a plate on it, it's fixed. You know, they walk away. And I think, you know, it's a slower process with pain management. I mean, it just it's what gets me out of bed in the morning knowing that I'm going to improve the life of a, a dog that's in pain. I wonder if there's a, perhaps something in there with the answer to the next question I've got for you, which is, you know, what has been the secret of your longevity in this profession? You know, we hear a lot about people burning out after, after, th you know, three, four five years and, and leaving the profession. And I think we all feel the effects of, the sense of there being a shortage of clinical talent. Yeah. People that are in this profession for a long time seem, you know, that I, I wonder if we're actually looking at the end of those days where people see multiple career paths and options as a, as a very viable way into their future side hustles, as it were. Right. What's been the secret of your longevity and what would you advise, you know, people thinking about, you know, either coming into this profession or entering the profession at the moment, what things should they be doing to, to really get to grips with the profession from your perspective? To answer that, I'm going to first talk about, there was a movement for a while to have two career paths for veterinarians where they went through school and they were either going to come out as a companion animal veterinarian or a food, large animal veterinarian. And I thought, what a mistake. And I think that one of the things that has kept me going is I have realized that as a veterinarian, compared to, you know, our single species uh, physician brethren, 
you know, we, we have so many paths that we can go down and you don't have to become a boarded specialist to find a special interest in something. And, you know, at the age of 50, I reinvented myself and really became a pain practitioner. Prior to that, I was very much into dentistry. I was in, you know, before it was even a boarded profession, you know, I was doing a lot of dental stuff and, you know, that really lit my fire for a long time. Mm. And pain management came along and, you know, it started to become a thing where you could actually do something because there were drugs coming out and procedures you could do and rehab and, And that was, and I, and I'd always known that was what I was really interested in, but I think as a veterinarian, you can reinvent yourself. And I think that's how you prevent burnout. I hate this. Well, what do you love about it? There's something in there that you love and otherwise you wouldn't become a veterinarian and pick that, or maybe you loved one thing and found out it wasn't right, but you've discovered something else. Just pursue it. Do you have a, like almost a formula, as it were, like when you got into dentistry, like what did you do to get good at that and how long did it take? And then the same with pain management, like have you sort of uncovered a bit of a, a bit of a process as you change direction to bring you success? Look to other people or who are doing that and ask them where to go. How do I do this? Yes. Right. One of your, the people you interviewed, Robin Downing, you know, I can remember she's really the person that I was at a meeting and I went to a meeting because it had some stuff in pain management. I was interested in, she saw me sitting there and she came over and talked to me and said, this, this is how you do it. And, you know, so you need, you need to seek out like-minded people and, and have them help you out. Find your tribe. Yeah. What an amazing person to have in your tribe is Robin Downing. (laughs) I'm going to, go on to the rapid fire questions in a second Mike but before we do is there anything that I haven't asked or we haven't explored enough that is really important the listeners understand so one of the things that we often try to do especially my my front staff knows how to do this as well is you know people call with animals when they call with animals that are in pain or they think there's something going on you know it's really good to try to to bring out, you know, they call and they say, well, I need acupuncture, but yet they don't have a diagnosis. And to explain the importance of, of a diagnosis and to explain how just because it's one thing doesn't mean it's something else. So, you know, the example we use is that, you know, if you've got a shooting pain down your leg, it's really not your leg that hurts, it's your back. And animals experience the same thing. They have neck pain, They may be limping on the right front because they have something called radicular pain. So we try to explain it to them in that kind of terminology so that they, they, they understand this is not a simple process and that we're going to have to work through it. Great. Thank you. Okay. So rapid fire questions and you can answer these however you like. So first thing is what's your superpower? My superpower is actually it's both my kryptonite and my superpower is I oh, two for one. Yeah, Man. I know it. You know, I really make decisions on the spot by myself and it's like driving a speedboat. You know, it's like, you know, you, you make a decision, you enact it and so forth. It's also my kryptonite in that, you know, sometimes I don't, ask people around me if that's the best thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) 
What do you think is done well in veterinary medicine? If you had asked me this 15 years ago, I would have said our public image, but I think that has dropped somewhat. But what I do think is done well is, and, and we're, we're, we're slowly losing this as specialties take over, we still have the capability, especially in older veterinarians, of treating so many different disciplines. You know, we're the dentist, we're the OBGYN, we're the internist, we're the radiologist, et cetera. I suppose the flip side to that then is if you were a veterinary god and you could change change one thing about the profession, what would that thing be? If I could change one thing, I would like to change the degree of confidence and self-assurance of the newest graduates that are coming out there. I see people that just don't believe in themselves. Yeah. Amen to that. What's the best piece of advice you've either been given or you've given someone else that's really paid off? Well, I think the not so much the best advice, but what I referred to before is having someone tell me, mm, you can't do that. <laughs> red, red rag to the bull there. Right, right. I suppose that, that might actually be the worst piece of advice you were ever given or the best. Yeah, it could be both. It can be both, right. You're kind of hammering the two for one on the quick fires. Damn. <laughs> You're like a veritable quick fire sprinter. Have you got any books that you've read through the course of your career or perhaps recently that stand out as that that made a huge difference, that made a big impact on me and you'd recommend that or perhaps a book you've given to other people more than any other? So, yeah, this has nothing to do with veterinary medicine. I don't know if people in the UK know who Theodore Roosevelt was, but he was a president beginning of the century, last century. And uh, most books that were written about him were about his early life and his presidency and so forth. But there was a book written about him after he was president called The River of Doubt. And it was about his exploration of Brazil and the headwaters of the Amazon and how he overcame great adversity. He almost died several times. People in his party did die. And... Um, it's an inspirational story about how to get through life. One of the things that they talked about in the book was when he was with his family, they would go on hikes and they would pick a straight line. And if they came to an obstacle, they could go over it or under it, but they could never go around it. And, you know, I think that's good advice for life. <laughs> I'm just wondering what he did when he came to trees. Yeah, you had to climb it. You've got to climb the damn thing <laughs> or chop it down. What was the name of that book again? The River of Doubt. And I'm sorry, I don't recall the author. No, that's okay. That's that title we'll do. We'll research it and we'll put it in the show notes, you see. Uh, so please check the show notes for links to things like that. And we will also link to Mike's book as well, Dr. Petty's Pain Relief for Dogs is its second best title. <laughs> I was going to call my book Shit I Wish Somebody Told Me Day One of Vet School, but never bothered. But apparently that, <laughs> that wasn't acceptable either. So I think the titles we want to call our books are much better than the titles they actually end up with. Yeah. What's the coolest thing you've bought for yourself in the last six months? I think the coolest thing, oh boy, you know, I'm going to 
go sideways in this. The coolest thing I, that we bought was uh, actually for my wife, and she got a Vespa, and she loves it. <laughs> cool. It is cool. I want to like okay, so we're going to need a picture of you guys both behind the Vespa for the the show intro, if that's okay. All right, that's a request for me. If you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, what would that be? Ah, uh, it's a good question. I think the 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 best advice is it's going to get better. You know, you come out and you're very confused about stuff, and you're working hard, and your boss isn't happy. Just remember, it's going to get better, you know, as you learn things. As you learn things, my goodness me. Please, nobody miss that. Okay, last question then. I don't get the sense you're as, as big on the socials as, as some of my guests. Are you, are you blessed with not being cursed with that particular affliction? Yeah, so when Trump was coming to power, <laughs> I found out I was on Facebook and so forth and I found out I was starting to hate some of my friends and I decided <laughs> it was a really good time to just get rid of so, my Facebook. <laughs> okay. I think that was a very wise so, so decision. I, I, yeah. I haven't had a Facebook account in years. Yeah. That's good. Right. Well, that question sucks then. So you get, in that case, we'll rephrase it to be, if you could broadcast a message via any medium, whatever, to all of your colleagues around vet, veterinary medicine, if you give them a message, what would the message be? I would say that you have um, that that at least half of your your patients are in pain, and probably out of that half, another half of those would greatly benefit from therapy. But the sad fact is, is that we we treat less than about five percent of our our animals. Please start to really evaluate pain and give those animals the life that they truly deserve. And this is a slightly supplementary question, but you mentioned a questionnaire earlier. I assume that there might be such a questionnaire in your book or associated resources. Would that be a correct assumption? No, I don't think they were really out <laughs> at the time. <laughs> oh, shit. There we go. That was me said. So where would you direct people to get that questionnaire resource that would allow the pet owners to kind of tell them that they, their pet were in pain? So there is a thing called the Canine Brief Pain Inventory, which is great for dogs. And in it, there's a three-part questionnaire, and there's one part called the Pain Interference Score that asks some very simple questions and can point towards issues. Uh, more recently, Zoetis has got some interactive like animations that show for both dogs and cats. And it shows a cat having difficulty jumping on a table, you know, things along that line. And I really like that. So, you know, get your, your clinic and iPad and have that available for the clients to look at. I love it. That's fantastic. We will link up in the show notes to a few of these resources for people to take a bit of a shortcut. Dr. Mike Petty, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a really entertaining and interesting conversation and a subject. I just, I know it's going to have made a difference to a lot of people. So thank you very much for your time and for, for your lovely wife for lending you to me for a couple of hours. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure.
Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Wasn't Dr. Petty an awesome guest? I bet you learned some really awesome morsels of pain management awesomeness there. If you did, don't forget to thank him next time you see him at a conference. Give him a high five. He'd totally love that, I'm sure. I have one request before you jump off, and that is to make sure you recommend the show on iTunes. If you are enjoying it, please leave a star rating and a nice comment. I love to read those. Very inspiring to keep going. And if you wouldn't mind sharing the show with your friends, your family in veterinary medicine so we can keep the audience growing, that would be super awesome too. From all of us here at Vetex International, be safe, be well, and be happy. <laughs>